Hello guys, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. The premier North Wales spare room based true crime enthusiast cat interfering one person true crime show that seeks out the cases that aren't at the front of your mind, the often long forgotten or obscure ones that I seek out to bring for your listening from all across the UK and Ireland. Bringing you such tales is myself, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. You guys are the enthusiasts that keep me doing what I do each time around. It means the absolute world as always having you joining me here today and I hope that as you're listening in, then you and yours are all safe and you're all well. Now many thanks for the feedback concerning the previous story multi-parter here on the show, A Family's Fight. It's an unforgettable tale that one, isn't it, eh? It's one that should so much be more familiar than it actually is. And when I first came across it, As I was reading it, I thought it's one of the most moving and powerful tales I've ever read. And as I said in the episode, one that was a privilege to work upon, because stories such as Lynn should be out there and known, they really should. I gather from the responses I've had from you that you guys felt the same way, because the feedback's been very, very positive indeed, so it's much appreciated folks, thanks very much. Now because real life sometimes gets in the way of things in the true criming world, I've had to change the Patreon episode I had planned for October for a different one. But all's not lost, because the episode I did have planned, the case I'd researched, is actually the case covered in the episode that you'll be hearing here today. I'll do something different for this upcoming bonus Patreon episode I think, and which will be out very soon, plus because I've been so rammed with a pension plan at the moment, I haven't actually had chance to sit down and do this Patreon live stream I've mentioned as yet, but it is coming, hang in there folks, I'm just waiting for the mirror with the light bulbs dotted around it to arrive before I can possibly do my theatre. No, I digress. On the subject of Patreon, big thanks go out to both my returning and new supporters of the show, with shout outs this time around going out to Fergus Innes, Joanne Nice, Sarah Fletcher, Chris Stead, Diana Soldo, and Kevin Hinchley and Helen Wellesley Shepherd, who've become annual supporters. Apologies if I've pronounced anybody's name wrong there. Now on the subject of becoming an annual patron to the show, should you wish to become one, then you can get it at a discounted price, and I may even send you some goodies as a thank you also. Thanks very much, you kind folks. Stuff has gone out to some of you, and while you're waiting for bonus episode number 34, Hopefully you've all caught up with the other 33 of them. There's at least 20 episodes that haven't seen the light of day on the regular show as yet, so perhaps they're the perfect way to pass a bit of the lockdown that's surely coming around to all of us. We've got it here right now, and sadly, I think it is coming around to everybody. So less than it costs for you to rob yourself a supermarket trolley, and quicker than Trump recovered from his unbelievably convenient bout of Covid, If like these kind folk I mentioned before that you want to get yourself some extra enthusiast tales, including Operation Magnesium, the horrors over the holidays, the madness at Mother Max or the latest Ripper in the making, then just head on over and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. You can't miss it, it's got the same show logo and everything. And that's it. It's so simple to do, it makes a Love Islander look like Confucius. And as quick as a flash, you can be hearing these and more. Who knows, I may even be sending you some stuff. I'd also like to remind listeners that CrimeCon is coming to the UK next year, and alongside some of your favourite shows, I'll be in attendance for the Saturday and Sunday there, 
Now it promises to be a great weekend with loads going on and I look forward to meeting some of you guys to say hi to there. We can even put the world to rights over a pint afterwards, I'm sure. I'm sure there's plenty to discuss. There are still a number of early bird tickets available for the event, a link to which is in the episode show notes, and which, thanks to friends of the show and organisers of the event, if you head in to order and enter the unique code ENTHUSIAST at the order page, you can get yourself for a generous 10% discount at Plus, if you let me know you've done so, I'll even make sure there are some true crime enthusiast grab bags waiting for you at the event. Jurassic Park. I've watched a lot of Alan Partridge of late. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've dug out and researched a very intriguing case. It's one of the most callous and cold-blooded actions you'll ever hear of. And when you hear it, I'm sure that you'll think it could easily have been much worse than it actually was. I know it sounds a contradiction that, but I'm sure you'll come to see what I mean as the tale progresses. For our story, we're heading back to the mid-1990s and off proper north of the UK to Scotland and its capital city, Edinburgh, where you'll hear the unbelievable actions of a callous individual that will have you shaking your head in disbelief, I'm sure. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for a tale I'll recount for an episode I've entitled An Almost Fatal Tipple. Situated in the Lothian region of the Scottish Lowlands, Edinburgh is Scotland's capital city and second most populous after Glasgow. It almost needs no introduction, and there's so much that could be said about it, we'd be here for the day. So just a few tidbits of trivia then. It's the home of the Edinburgh Fringe, the world's largest arts festival. It's the city where most of the Harry Potter books were written. It's the city that had the world's first fire brigade. And famous people to hail from Edinburgh include Bond himself, Sean Connery, pint-sized comedy genius Ronnie Corbett, authors Robert Louis Stevenson and the father of Sherlock Holmes himself, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and most notably, it's now home to Adam, the genial host of the UK True Crime podcast, teaching Edinburgh to stay classy. Personally, I was well torn between my favourite stats this week, but some of the contenders were that Edinburgh is home to the world's most pierced woman, Elaine Davidson, who has more than 11,000 piercings and is surely the easiest person ever to shop for at Christmas. Just a tin of brasso and that's it. And that Edinburgh Zoo has a knighted penguin, Sir Nils Olav III, the mascot and colonel-in-chief of the Norwegian Kingsguard, who inspects the Kingsguard on their visits to the city, and since being knighted in 2008, is now, by all accounts, a brigadier. How ace is that, eh? But we aren't here for piercing nutters or military-ranked penguins. A bit of a darker tone makes up our tale, and for it, we head first back to 1987. Now, a couple of series ago on the show, in series two as a matter of fact, I'm sure that you recall the tales of both Rodney Wicello, the Heinz baby food blackmailer, and Edgar Pierce, the Mardi Gras bomber, each of whom waged campaigns of terror against their chosen targets, Heinz and Barclays Bank, then Sainsbury's supermarket, respectively, in an attempt to extort money from them. 
Needless to say, neither plot was successful, and each tale in their respective episodes is well worth having a listen to, with no need for me to recap here. But the point I'm making is that it goes with the territory of big business. There will always be the occasional threat, be it from a disgruntled employee or a customer from time to time just airing their grievances, or perhaps even someone with a bit more of a sinister, destructive, greed-driven motive. In 1987, the former UK supermarket chain Safeway, which was taken over and rebranded by Morrison's Supermarkets in 2004, was one such business. A mysterious figure using the pen name The Raven began sending a series of letters to the supermarket chain in an attempt to systematically blackmail them out of the sum of £100,000 by contaminating foodstuffs in Edinburgh's Cameron Toll outlet of Safeway. He, or she, for the culprit was never caught, did thankfully leave handwritten warning labels on the packaging of the coleslaw jars and grapefruit juice that were found to have been contaminated with ground glass and weed killer. But the threat was very clear. Pay up and the raven would stop. If not, then the campaign would continue in earnest and perhaps the warning notices would stop coming. Now in the end, the company held its nerve and didn't pay up and the raven got fed up and disappeared into the woodwork. But a consequence of this campaign was that it prompted Safeway to install CCTV in all this stores nationwide, in an attempt to combat anything similar happening in the future. Seven years later, it was wondered whether the raven had flown back in again. In late August 1994, Edinburgh was buzzing with its annual festival fever, and there was all sorts going on, with comedy acts and drama groups on stages all over the city presenting a variety of shows that ranged from the surreal to the serious. Off to see a play at the Fringe over the weekend of the 28th and 29th of August were the Sharwood Smith family, Elizabeth and her husband Geoffrey, their son Andrew, and two friends of theirs who had travelled up from England to stay for a few days. So ahead of their friend's visit, on the afternoon of Wednesday the 24th of August 1994, Elizabeth went to get some shopping in. She visited the branch of Safeway located at Edinburgh's Hunter's Tryst, stocking up on extra groceries for their guests, and then, anticipating pre- and post-theatre drinks for them all, added a bottle of gin and a two-litre bottle of Safeway's own brand Indian tonic water as a mixer to the trolley. That evening, shopping done, guests just arrived, Elizabeth decided to have a pre-dinner drink, so she poured herself a vermouth and tonic while her son Andrew sipped a glass of neat tonic water. Whoever does that I don't know because it's foul, but I digress. After only a few sips of their respective drinks, however, both became ill almost immediately. Their mouths dried up, each began to hallucinate, their pulses raced, at one point reaching 140 beats per minute, and they even experienced temporary blindness. But luck was on the side of the Sharwood Smiths in more ways than one, for not only did both Elizabeth and Andrew survive, Geoffrey Sharwood Smith happened to be a consultant anaesthetist at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, he was never going to be a bloody road sweeper with a name like that, was he? And their house guests that weekend were a chemist with an interest in hallucinogens and her husband, a neuropathologist. 
Both guest doctors supported Dr. Sherwood Smith when he immediately suspected that his wife and son were displaying the symptoms of atropine poisoning, a substance derived from the berries of the deadly nightshade plant. But if they had been poisoned with this, then where had it come from? The garden of the house was searched in case some had been growing there and had been picked by mistake and possibly ingested by the pair, but no such berries were found and it seemed that the source of the poisoning would remain a mystery. Now by the Friday evening both Elizabeth and Andrew had recovered enough to sit down once again with a drink and a mixer, and sure enough, once again both took severely ill. This time, alongside the previous displayed symptoms, Elizabeth was stricken with paralysis, Andrew was once again hallucinating, and if both had been left untreated, a coma would have rapidly beckoned for both before death due to heart or respiratory failure. Recognising once again his initial diagnosis, Geoffrey Sherwood Smith immediately contacted the emergency services and travelled with his wife and son in the ambulance, managing to solicit enough information from them that through process of elimination, he was able to identify the tonic water as the most likely source. Once at the hospital, however, his claims that his wife and son had been poisoned by atropine in a bottle of tonic water, plucked randomly from the shelves of a branded supermarket, were met with disbelief. I mean, who does that, eh? But the following day, convinced enough in his theory to push this, Geoffrey took the bottle of tonic water that his wife had bought the previous Wednesday to the hospital for analysis before visiting the Hunter's Tryst Safeway himself and managing to convince the manager there that all of the remaining bottles of tonic water need be removed from the shelves immediately for the interests of public safety. But there still remained a feeling of disbelief. Until the following day, when two more cases of suspected atropine poisoning were rushed into the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Once again, with the common denominator being Safeway's own brand Indian tonic water. And then the ooh bollocks siren went off, for when the bottle of tonic water that Geoffrey Sherwood Smith had brought in for analysis was tested, it was found to contain enough atropine to kill 15 people. Time for science with the true crime enthusiast. Atropine is a white, odourless crystalline powder that melts at 114 degrees centigrade and was first isolated in 1833 by two German chemists, Geiger and Hess, from the berries of Atropa belladonna, the deadly nightshade plant. It's still extracted today from this tall bush, which is native to woodland around the Mediterranean, is cultivated in France, and is rare, but not entirely unknown, in the UK. In Renaissance times, belladonna was fashionable as an eye cosmetic. Women squeezed the juice of a berry into their eyes and the atropine would cause the pupil to dilate, giving them a doe-eyed look. It was continued to be used in this vein until the 20th century, and until quite recently, ophthalmic surgeons used it to examine inside the eye. In different areas of the world, atropine had different uses. In Morocco it was used as an aphrodisiac, in Nepal it was a sedative, whereas in the Middle Eastern countries it was believed to reinforce the effects of marijuana. Atropine is not very soluble in water, and doctors who administer it medically choose atropine sulfate, its most soluble form. Now the amounts given are tiny, and typical doses are less than a milligram, an ounce is enough for 50,000 doses. 
any larger amounts than a milligram lead to blurred vision, mania and delirium, but to kill someone requires the use of about a gram of it. In fact, just one berry from the deadly nightshade plant contains enough to kill a child, although it rarely does because if it's ingested, its bitter taste immediately acts as a warning and a repellent and it's immediately spat out. The lethal dose for an adult is approximately 90 to 130 milligrams. However, atropine sensitivity is highly variable, and because atropine sulfate is many times more soluble than other compounds of it, 100 grams can be dissolved in just 100 mil of water, so 1 mil may contain roughly tenfold the lethal dose. Symptoms of atropine poisoning include increased body temperature, which stays high for at least 8 hours, dilated pupils, dryness of the mouth, thirst, difficulty swallowing, dilation of the blood vessels, rambling speech, hallucinations and dizziness. Other symptoms include an increased heart rate, drying of nasal and oral mucosa, as well as other secretions throughout the body, including preventing perspiration, increased intraocular pressure, the slowing of movement through the gastrointestinal tract, and constriction of the smooth muscle around the urethra. These symptoms begin to take effect only 15 minutes after ingestion, but when injected into the body, it works almost instantaneously. It only lasts about two hours as it's metabolized, but it can take up to three or four days to be completely out of the system. Atropine can be detected in concentrations as low as one part in 10,000, but as the body metabolizes it, only traces remain by the time death occurs, and as it's a non-irritant toxin, so there are no inflamed internal organs for a pathologist to find, because sometimes it does kill. In the US, atropine has caused deaths among teenagers who've tried to get high by drinking tea made from the leaves of an ornamental bush called Angel's Trumpet, a plant which produces a lot of atropine and can induce hallucinations in small doses although too much can cause paralysis and memory loss, can even be fatal. Yet while it's undeniably deadly, it is also an antidote for other poisons, such as the carbamate and organophosphate insecticides that are used in agriculture. It's also an antidote for nerve gases, as the unlikely mix of toxin and treatment stems from the effect that atropine has on its target organs, the nerve endings. Soldiers in the 1992 Gulf War carried syringes of atropine and prolidoxime solutions to inject themselves in the event of a nerve gas attack, as atropine immediately calms the body's nerve endings, while the prolidoxime releases the enzyme that is blocked by the nerve gas, so it can begin to do its job again. If I can have your atropine essays in by the start of next term, that would be great. So I'm sure you can agree... It's not really something to piss about with atropine, is it? And someone had been spiking tonic water with it in the Edinburgh area in 1994. One victim, 51-year-old Raymond Sutherland, was later alleged to be permanently impaired after he'd consumed contaminated tonic water, being left with buzzing and hissing sounds in both ears at the same time. Another, 52-year-old Marie Mason, frightened her family so much with her symptoms that her husband had to even call the couple's daughter to help dress her and take her to hospital. In fact, all in all, eight people were to be admitted to hospital in Edinburgh suffering the effects of atropine poisoning. But by far the worst affected 
a 39-year-old English lecturer, Alexandra Agata, and her 11-year-old daughter, Beatrice. On the Sunday evening of the 28th of August, the day after Geoffrey Sherwood Smith had taken his bottle to the hospital for analysis, Alexandra Agatha settled down in her armchair at home in the village of Athelstainford in East Lothian, done in from a day out horse riding with her daughter and wanting to relax with her favourite tipple, a gin and tonic. Her husband, 48-year-old university biochemistry lecturer Dr Paul Agatha, mixed one for his wife but declined to have one himself because he had to give the Agatha's gardener, Joe Taylor, a lift home that evening. But there was something not quite right with her drink, Alexandra thought as she sipped it. The taste was much too bitter to her liking, and she commented on this, asking her husband what he'd mixed it with, to which he replied he'd not mixed it any differently than he usually would, even down to the ice cubes and slice of lemon. She handed the drink over to Joe Taylor for his opinion, who sniffed it, but merely thought it just contained a generous measure of gin. Alexandra, still smarting over how bitter a drink was, then stood up and promptly keeled over, crumpling to the floor in a dizzied heap. Within five minutes of taking a sip, a fiery pain had gripped her parched throat, and in her frenzied delirium, she watched as the room and its fixtures and fittings become draped in what she later described as a gossamery silk. Paul Agatha immediately picked up the telephone and called the family GP, Dr Ross Langlands, but there was no answer, so he left an urgent message on the answering machine at the Lammermuir Medical Practice in the nearby village of Haddington. Now fortunately, the message was picked up only a few moments later by a locum GP just returned to the surgery for making a house call nearby at the time, Dr Judith Richardson, and after recognising the seriousness of the message, Dr Richardson made her way immediately to the Agatha's home, Kilduff Lodge, arriving there only a few minutes later. She'd also had the foresight to summon emergency services to attend the property, with an ambulance arriving shortly before she did. Beatrice Agatha had also had a sip of tonic water at the same time as her mother, and was by this time herself displaying symptoms of illness also so both Beatrice and Alexandra were loaded into the ambulance to be taken to the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, whilst the attending paramedic, James Rudge, asked Paul Agatha to hand over what he suspected to be the offending ingredient, a two-litre bottle of Safeway's own brand Indian tonic water. However, James also had the presence of mind to request and then pour the remainder of Alexandra Agatha's gin and tonic into a nearby empty jam jar to be taken away for analysis. As Alexandra was taken to hospital, the case was quickly surrounded by national hysteria, as it soon transpired that there were seven other casualties in the surrounding countryside of East Lothian, all who had fallen ill involving encounters with tonic water and who were hospitalised with similar symptoms. Police believed that they had a mass poisoner on their hands. By the following day, Monday the 29th of August, Safeway stores throughout the UK had removed all bottles of its own brand Indian tonic water from their shelves. Some 55,000 bottles from its 370 UK stores and 207 Presto stores. Production was halted at the Bradford factory where the tonic water bottles were produced 
and the production areas and equipment thoroughly checked at the premises by health investigators, but found to be all fine. All of the staff here were also spoken to and ruled out, so it seemed that the bottles had been contaminated at a remote level only, but where in Edinburgh was affected. A warning was put out requesting an amnesty on Safeway's own brand tonic water bottles, and a designated police telephone line was set up for people to contact should they think they were in possession of such a bottle. And although police received hundreds of telephone calls, only a couple warranted further action. In fact, it seemed that the bottles were localised solely to the Hunter's Tryst branch of Safeway in Edinburgh's Fair Milehead. At a press conference held later the same day, both Dr. Geoffrey Sharwood Smith and Dr. Paul Agater appeared, their families by that time released from hospital and stable respectively, with Dr. Sharwood Smith telling newspapers. I knew from my professional knowledge that this was poison. It was far too quick for a viral infection. Only someone with a twisted and very devious mind could do something like this. It's very difficult to understand why anyone would want to. Under certain circumstances, it could result in deaths. He went on to explain the dangers of atropine, and also told how he had traced the source of the poison back to the contaminated tonic water bottle through process of elimination, and that he'd remembered his wife saying there'd been no seal on the bottle when she bought it. Dr. Agatha said something similar. He'd bought two bottles of tonic water, but noticed that the seal was broken on one of the bottles, although he hadn't given it any further thought. Describing his wife and daughter taking ill, he said, I bought it on Wednesday and on Sunday night my wife and daughter had some. In about 15 minutes they complained of symptoms of dizziness, blurred mouth and blurred vision. At first I wasn't sure it was serious as it was a hot room anyway. But within 10 minutes they got worse and it became quickly apparent they were in distress. If it has been done by someone maliciously it is totally outside anything I can understand. If anyone knows who the culprit is, they should go to the police, and the sooner the better. It is beyond me to imagine what type of person would do this. My wife and daughter could have been killed. Safeway also once again asked the citizens of Edinburgh and its vicinity to return immediately all bottles of tonic water that had been purchased at the Hunter's Tryst branch over the previous few weeks. Specifically, all bottles out of 21 that had been sold there over the suspect period from the Wednesday to the Saturday. Following the appeal, all of these were handed in, and following analysis by the Forensic Science Laboratory, it was found that only six bottles of tonic water that had been handed in had been spiked with atropine, all purchased, tops unsealed, from the Hunter's Tryst branch. Through no small amount of cunning, had the poisoner devised the plan. As we said, atropine is very bitter, so much so that it can be detected at concentrations of 100 parts per million. This is why anybody daft enough to try the berries of belladonna during walks in the woods are often saved by the berry's sour taste as they spit them out. But the quinine in the tonic water is also bitter as anything too, isn't it? As I say, I don't know what possesses people to have it. It's foul, but it was a worthy disguise. Now in such circumstances there are always cranks and people who maliciously interfere in the investigations and the Safeway poisoning case was no exception. 
One of the local newspapers received a letter from a 25-year-old with a history of mental illness, Wayne Smith, who signed himself the Angel of God and admitted himself as the sole perpetrator. He was found ultimately to be nothing but a time waster and was later to be detained under the Mental Health Act for wasting police time and causing a public mischief. Just park that thought. Meanwhile, bonded by their mutual victimisation at the hands of some faceless, deranged mass poisoner, Dr Agatha made contact with the Sharwood Smiths to compare notes. Four days after they'd been discharged from hospital, Paul Agatha rang the family, expressing his fears that his wife may be attacked again as their address had been printed in newspaper reports and discussing with them the circumstances of their respective cases. By this time, it had even crossed Dr. Sharwood Smith's mind as to whether the police may possibly even suspect him of trying to poison his family. It was he who'd first mentioned atropine poison, plus he also had access to ampules of atropine in his role as an anaesthetist, and it's not the kind of stuff that's next to the till at Mrs. Bloggs' corner shop, is it? He had actually discussed this possibility with Paul Agatha when he had accepted an invite to dinner with the Sharwood Smiths three days later, and who just laughed and told him not to be ridiculous. If anyone was likely to be suspected, he claimed, he was just as in the frame as Dr. Sharwood Smith, as he was a bit of an expert on atropine. In fact, Paul Agatha was to astound the Sharwood Smiths with his knowledge of the poison and its effects that he seemed almost anxious to display. Elizabeth Sharwood Smith said later, He knew what concentrations of atropine had been put in because it had a bitter taste. He knew how much you could put in before you could taste it. He said he felt terribly guilty because he'd been the only person who had done the shopping and had poured the drinks out. He had then alleged that his wife had received a more concentrated dose which surprised me, added Elizabeth. Now, Paul Agatha didn't seem to share his knowledge of atropine with any others, but he was reflective in the days following his wife and daughter being released from hospital, telling the Glasgow Herald newspaper, It is a bizarre coincidence that it happened to the families of two people who recognised the symptoms were serious and took appropriate action. The victims were fit, healthy people, and I think that it was only these two coincidences which prevented any fatalities. Meanwhile, the police investigation, led by Detective Chief Superintendent John McGowan of Lothian and Borders Police, and staffed with 30 detectives working on the case, continued. Safeway staff members were questioned and interviewed to establish if any of them held a grudge against their employers, but all were to be cleared. All manner of theories for the poisonings were examined and one by one discounted. Was it someone echoing Wichello's campaign? Was it an ex-service person back from the Gulf War with supplies of atropine and a grudge against society? Or had the raven even returned? As we said, Wayne Smith had even falsely confessed to the poisonings but had been ruled out, so it was back to the public appeals. Now these public appeals were bringing in more and more bottles for testing, but no more than seven contaminated bottles were ever found. And then something about the constant mentioning of tonic water triggered the memory of a Napier University student, a part-time worker at the Hunter's Tryst Safeway store, 
for by the following Saturday, the 3rd of September, he now approached detectives with a curious tale to tell, which we shall hear all about following a short word from this week's show sponsors. Once again, the episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, the colourful and lively strategic puzzle game that I'm hooked on right now. If I'm not researching or writing, then in my downtime I'm on it, trying to push through level after level. It's got slugs, it's got bombs, it's got ominous oceans, and countless unique little characters such as Lapoleon, Moose and Whisper, who you take control of and use their unique different skills to progress your way through the mystical land of Minutia. As playful and a casual game as it is that anybody can enjoy playing, if you like strategic games where you're always thinking those two steps ahead also, then Best Fiends has the combination of both. It's constantly being smoothly updated to bring you new themed events, challenges and offers, and before you know it, like me, you'll be totally hooked and dozens of levels up, wanting to progress further on your journey. You don't even have to be online to play it, so you can do it on the move and enjoy it by yourself whilst you're commuting, or you can sit at home safely socially distanced, yet stay in touch with friends online by challenging them to keep up with your progress, keeping you connected in a fun way. All that's left to say is, what are you waiting for? See for yourself. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. Ten days before he approached police, in the early afternoon of Wednesday the 24th of August, the worker, a 21-year-old mechanical engineering student at Edinburgh's Napier University named Jonathan Dearden, had been stacking shelves at the Hunter's Tryst store when he'd spotted a man in the shop whose behaviour struck him as strange. In fact, Jonathan had earmarked him as a potential shoplifter. The man had stood out to him initially as he was a tall, waspish figure wearing a bright purple sweater, but also because Jonathan saw the man transferring bottles of tonic water from several that were underneath a folded green coat that he had in his trolley, and placing these back onto the shelf, witnessed him placing at least another two on there whilst holding another two in his hand. Now unless you're the world's shittest shopper and you really don't have a grasp of how supermarket shopping works, then behaviour such as this sticks in the mind, doesn't it? And it did so much so with Jonathan that he went and informed the in-store security about the man and asked them to keep an eye on him. This is where the Safeway CCTV came into play. Now although there was a camera fixed in the store that covered the alcoholic drink section, the wines, spirits and mixers, and although it was working, the recording function on that particular camera's video relay system back in the security office wasn't. Sounds like where I work, that does. But other CCTV camera footage in the store had been recorded, including at the entrance and along several of the other aisles, and Jonathan Dearden was certain that he would be able to identify the man again so Detective Constables Jim Egan and Brian Reed were tasked once again to trawl through the existing footage taken from the day. Now armed with Jonathan Dearden's description of a suspect that they could place acting suspiciously with tonic water on the crucial date, 
It wasn't long before who was almost certainly the person in question came onto the CCTV, and he looked very familiar to the two detectives. Very familiar indeed. He should have done, because the man on the CCTV was Paul Agatha. The following day, Sunday the 4th of September 1994, Paul Agatha was arrested at his home in front of his shocked wife and daughter. Officers searching his house found and seized the coat and the purple sweater he'd been wearing the previous week, also retaining a Safeway carrier bag and a till receipt dated and timed from the Hunter's Tryst store on the afternoon of Wednesday the 24th of August, five hours before Elizabeth Sherwood Smith had purchased her bottle of tonic water. Now you may ask, there's no law against shopping in Safeway, is there? Agatha had admitted that he'd bought tonic water from there already, even claiming that he'd recalled the seal on one of the bottles was already broken. But where police now looked at him as a person of interest was the fact that although out of all of the bottles that had been tested, the amount of atropine in each had varying dosages of levels of atropine ranging from 11mg to 74mg per litre, the bottle that Paul Agatha had handed over to paramedics contained the highest dosage 103 milligrams of it. Further, Alexandra Agatha's gin and tonic that had been retained in the jam jar had a concentration of atropine in it of 292 milligrams per litre, compared with 103 in the bottle that Agatha had poured into his wife's gin. It was later deduced that Alexandra Agatha had probably drunk about 150 ml of this, thereby receiving a dosage of around 50 milligrams. He also had access to atropine in his role at Napier University. Coincidence? But what about the bottles of tonic he'd been seen placing back onto the shelves? Upon questioning in an hour-long interview, when asked about his relationship with his wife, Agatha said that his wife was, I quote, hard-working, highly intelligent and well-organised. I regard her very highly. However, he went on to say that they'd grown apart over time with the fault on his side. Agatha told police that he sometimes found his wife alarming and tried to avoid her by working late. He said Alexandra, I quote, sometimes has me tearing my hair. He admitted that both had openly had affairs in their 18-year marriage and said that he wanted he and his wife to mediate to a formal separation and possible divorce with a view to him marrying his latest girlfriend, a mature student of his and mother of two named Carol Bonsall. He said he'd told Alexandra all about Carol and that she was fine with it, adding that his wife also had a lover, but he didn't think that that was any of his business. Agatha admitted freely that he'd been in the supermarket on the Wednesday in question and had bought two bottles of Safeway's own brand Indian tonic water, again repeating that he'd also noticed that on one of the bottles the seal was broken. He decided not to throw this bottle away and told police that he realised, in the light of the events which had followed, that this had been an extremely stupid thing to do. He admitted giving his wife a gin and tonic that he'd mixed on the Sunday evening and furthered that he had also earlier had one himself but had taken his tonic from an existing almost empty bottle. His wife had hers from a new one, the one he'd brought home, the unsealed one. Police had taken Agatha's car away for analysis, 
and traces of atropine were discovered on a cassette case inside it, which they asked him to explain. He had no convincing explanation for this finding, but merely suggested that the outside of one of the bottles must have been damp as the bottle must have leaked, and that the atropine had thus been transferred from the bottle to the cassette case via his hand. Asked about his own access to atropine, Agatha admitted that there were stocks of it at the university, but to gain access to it, he would have to fill in a detailed log and ask a laboratory technician for a key to the controlled store where it was kept. Then, breaking down in tears and needing time to compose himself, he professed his innocence, telling police that he would like to kill the poisoner who tried to murder his wife, saying, To tell you the truth, if I got hold of the blighter, I would kill him on the spot. I'm innocent. The following day, Paul Agatha took part in a police lineup, where he was picked out without hesitation by Jonathan Dearden, the student who'd witnessed the man suspiciously placing bottles back onto the shelves. Following this, Paul Agatha was charged with the attempted murder of his wife and daughter, as well as placing contaminated bottles of tonic water onto the shelves of the Safeway store at Hunter's Tryst and endangering the public by doing so. He made a brief appearance at Edinburgh Sheriff's Court the following day, Tuesday the 6th of September, where he was remanded in custody by Sheriff Andrew Bell pending further inquiries, before appearing once again a week later to be committed for trial and placed on remand to await. So, rather than a faceless maniac intent on murder from afar, was the solution actually much more closer to home? Born in Glossop on July the 14th, 1946, at school, Paul Samuel Agatha, a cousin of the actress Jenny Agatha, the fit nurse from the American Werewolf in London movie, had shown himself to be a very intelligent pupil, had progressed well through education and gone on to attend Edinburgh University, where he graduated with a first-class honours degree in biochemistry in 1968, following this with the completion of a doctorate in philosophy three years later. A postdoctoral fellow at London University from 1971 to 1974, and a postdoctoral fellow at St Andrews University from 1974 to 1976 followed, before Agatha returned to Napier College in a lecturer role. He remained in this position as the college became a polytechnic, obtaining promotion to senior lecturer in 1980, before becoming tenured as a reader in cell biology in 1984 at the School of Life Sciences at what had then become Napier University. By that time also, he was into his second marriage. His first marriage, to a woman named Jennifer, was somewhat stormy and had ended in 1970. But a couple of years later, he'd met a woman named Alexandra Shorthose, developing a relationship with her. The two were married on the 2nd of June 1976, and moved to Kilduff Lodge in the historic village of Athelstainford in East Lothian, about 20 miles away from Edinburgh, a village which is famous as being the birthplace of Scotland's national flag. As a short aside, legend has it that it's here in 823 AD, where the Scots, an army of Picts under King Angus, found itself surrounded by a larger force of Saxons led by Athelstan. Fearing the outcome of the battle, Angus led prayers for deliverance and was rewarded by seeing a cloud formation of a white salt air, the diagonal cross on which St Andrew had been martyred, against the blue sky. 
The king vowed that if he gained the victory with the saint's help, then Andrew would thereafter be the patron saint of Scotland. Now the Scots did win, thus leading to the adaption of the Psalter, the white St. Andrew's cross against a blue background which forms the Scottish national flag. A commemorative stone explaining this history can be found in Athelstainford Church, which also houses the National Flag Heritage Centre. So that's media, science, history and mythology. I'm waiting for bloody Ofsted to come and knock on the door anytime soon. By 1984, the Agatha's daughter Beatrice had been born, and shortly afterwards, Alexandra also began as a lecturer in English language at the same university. So pretty good life, a daughter, two decently paid careers, a nice home, and popularity. Indeed, both Paul and Alexandra were both liked by students and the majority of their colleagues alike, although a few noted that he was somewhat too enthusiastic about his work. They would regularly host dinner parties for friends at Kilduff Lodge, bantering around the table after dinner with impromptu limericks coming from the manic side that Paul Agatha's friends described him as having, and self-mocking clever puns from the bluntness of Alexandra, obviously in the days before Cards Against Humanity, wasn't it? Agatha also had a yearning to be a literary superstar, and although he had scientific papers published and one short story, a crime saga coincidentally involving a case of poisoning, that To Kill a Mockingbird masterpiece had thus far eluded him. Critics time and again rejected works that he submitted, claiming that whilst Agatha was, I quote, not without talent, his writing was much too complex, and that he'd gotten carried away with his own ingenuity. Perhaps this rejection in part also stemmed from the list of likes and dislikes that he would habitually enclose with manuscripts he sent out. One example listed as follows. Likes. Music, literature, open countryside, well-behaved dogs, burgundy of respectable age, log fires and work. Dislikes. Pop music, television, nuclear power plants, badly behaved dogs, idleness, Hirondel Red, Psychiatrists and Bureaucrats. And you need to know that why? Why on earth do you need to know that? So seemingly then, a happy, megamind-type family of academic scholars who entertained and even collaborated on academic projects together. A notable example being a fascinating sound in 1983 paper they co-wrote entitled... Aspects of Fuzziness in the Semantics and Pragmatics of English. Fascinating stuff, eh? Yeah. But less clear was the emotional integrity of the marriage. At least from 1990 onwards, the marriage began to break down in substance, and although both got on still, shared the bills and parenting of their daughter, whilst they lived underneath the same roof, the marriage was certainly one just on paper alone. Both Paul and Alexandra Agatha openly had affairs with other partners to each of their knowledge, and said partners were even welcomed around to Kilduff Lodge on numerous occasions, with it all being above board. It boggles the mind, doesn't it, eh? By 1994, Paul Agatha's latest relationship was with a 40-year-old mature student of his, a divorcee and mother of two named Carol Bonsall who he claimed had invited him out for a drink as a thank you for coaching her through examinations. The relationship had stemmed from here, and again, as we said before, 
it was all above board. Alexandra knew all about Carol and had even met her on two or three occasions, hosting Carol and her children at Kilduff Lodge. But this relationship had gotten much more serious than other past affairs for Paul. There is suggestion that he'd fallen very hard for Carol, wanting to make a new life with her. And more than one account that I found in the course of me researching the episode claims that while she felt for him, she couldn't accept the situation as it was and wanted him to divorce his wife and marry her. Now Agatha was struggling with this somewhat, the attentions of two women, even though they knew of each other, and there's also evidence that he was under intense financial pressure at the time also. Despite him having a well-paid job, Alexandra had by 1994 long since ceased lecturing at Napier University and was at the time working as a dog groomer, a profession with a markedly different salary. Add to that that aside from him now being the major breadwinner, Agatha was somewhat supporting Carol and her children financially also, and he was beginning to hemorrhage money, to the point where, rather than downscale properties maybe, and tighten the old belt in somewhat, he'd instead taken out two loans to keep up with the lifestyle that he'd become accustomed to. The pressure was beginning to build and build upon Paul Agatha, and on the 17th of August 1994, it came to a head when he made what was described as a suicidal telephone call to his GP, Dr. Ross Langlands. Dr. Langlands went to see an, I quote, almost incoherent, deeply distressed Agatha after a message had been left upon the GP's answering service saying that he was so depressed he was considering taking his own life. Dr. Langlands called him back and then went around to Agatha's home where he spent some 75 minutes with him talking over his problems. Here, Agatha told him amongst other things that his marriage was over, that he'd met a younger woman whom he'd fallen in love with, and that he had financial problems, having had to take out two loans to cover debts that he was incurring, after a financial deal that he'd struck with his wife. According to Dr Langland's notes, and we know this is what was said, because although owing to medical ethics such information is always of the strictest confidentiality between doctor and patient, and cannot be divulged unless both parties are consenting for it to be, Paul Agatha was to later sign a mandate that allowed Dr Langland's notes to be released to the police. So we know Dr Langland had advised Agatha to contact a solicitor over the financial situation, and for he and his wife to try relate, thinking this may help with mediation. The GP was to later say, I think he was generally unhappy about the way he was being treated by his wife. He felt as if she was treating him with some contempt. He felt a little bit under pressure from the lady in his new relationship that he ought to leave his wife and perhaps consider marrying her. By the end, he was very calm and I think he mentioned he decided life was worth living or he'd hit upon another solution, and a week later, put it into place. The trial of Paul Agatha began at Edinburgh's High Court on Tuesday the 24th of January 1995, before Judge Lord Morrison, where, charged with the attempted murder of his wife and endangering the lives of seven other people who'd been injured after ingesting tonic water laced with atropine, he entered a plea of not guilty. Over the course of the eight-day trial, the court heard testimony from several witnesses, beginning with Alexandra Agatha herself, 
arguably the trial's star witness, who gave evidence in which she told the court that she'd known her husband for 20 years and that he did not have a spark of malice in him. She'd never once felt any physical or psychological threat from him in their entire 19-year marriage. She'd visited her husband in prison several times over his remand period and told the court how she'd considered, then dismissed, the idea that he had poisoned her, saying, Clearly, in a case like this, you would have to be incredibly brain-dead not to think of all the possible options. So I've considered it, but I've rejected it. She went on to explain how the Agatha's marital relationship had deteriorated by 1990, by which time they lived separate lives in an open marriage where they lived together, shared the household bills and Paul Agatha paid the mortgage, but one where both would openly have affairs. In 1993, Paul's latest relationship was with Carol Bonsall, whom Alexandra had met several times and even occasionally received at home. She told the court, other people saw it as more of a problem than we did. She seemed a perfectly nice person to me. There were no recremations, no mystery, no tantrums, no jealousy. Asked then by the judge if she expected her husband's affair to peter out, she replied, Yes, I have a cynical outlook on life in general, my lord. Concerning the night of the 28th of August of the previous year, Alexandra told the court she'd remarked on the strength of the gin and tonic after tasting it, asking her husband and a friend, Joe Taylor, to try it. Her husband claimed that he'd not mixed it any differently than usual, and while she was unsure if he'd sampled it himself, Joe Taylor had certainly smelt it. Joe thought it was a hefty gin, she told the court. Describing the effect shortly after she'd sipped this, Alexandra said, I felt dizzy and weird, I felt very weak and my legs were heavy, there were muscle spasms down my legs. There was a gossamer silk effect over my hands, the seats, the table and the floor. A corner of the room began to bend in like a piece of gaudy architecture. It was a description that the court was to hear almost mirrored with the testimonies of other people who'd ingested the spiked tonic water including victims Raymond Sutherland, Marie Mason and Elizabeth Sharwood-Smith, the former pair telling of their symptoms and how doctors and hospital staff had originally ascribed their conditions wrongly as being the effects of alcohol abuse when they'd attended hospital. Elizabeth, as we've already heard, fortunately had your friendly neighbourhood consultant anaesthetist atropine poison spotter share in her bed, and it was thanks to the actions of her husband that atropine was first put forward as a cause. On the fourth day of the trial, Dr. Sharwood Smith himself gave evidence, telling the court of his wife and son's symptoms, and how after he discussed this with colleagues, as well as the opinions of house guests who were staying with them, that he recognised them as being atypical of atropine poisoning. Yet he was loath to believe this, claiming, Unless you are of a paranoid nature, you don't expect that someone is trying to poison you. Fair dues there, Geoffrey. He then told the court that Agatha had subsequently contacted the Sharwood Smiths to compare notes, had visited their home and even had a meal there with them, all the time maintaining the pretense of sharing in their grief and concern. He even had the tenacity to write them a letter in which he said, Please accept my warmest sympathy and my assurance that the poisoner will give himself away sometime 
and that our system of justice very seldom convicts the innocent. But Dr. Sharwood Smith was quite unsettled by Agatha's visits and how much he went on about atropine, proclaiming himself as a bit of an expert. Indeed, he'd even briefly wondered at the time whether Agatha may even be the person responsible for the poison bottles. I mean, what are the chances? But the most telling evidence against Paul Agatha, however, was given by the forensic scientist who'd analysed the contaminated water bottles, Dr Howard Oakley. He'd looked at each individual bottle, all of which were produced as exhibits so that the courtroom looked like George Best's front room, and told the court that he'd found that the bottle that had been used to make Alexandra Agatha's gin and tonic contained a much larger dose of atropine than all of the others. Whilst these had contained levels of atropine in each ranging from 11mg to 74mg a litre, the Agatha's bottle had contained 103mg. Medical expert Dr Anthony Busutil, a professor of forensic medicine called by the Crown, also told the court that in his 18 years experience, he'd never seen atropine used to deliberately poison, but agreed that it would be a good choice to use as it was difficult to detect in the body and even an experienced pathologist may not recognise it as cause of death. He also agreed that its bitter taste may be masked by Indian tonic water, which contained quinine, a substance that's also bitter. It was, the Crown claimed, the reason for the bitterness of this laced gin and tonic which Agatha had poured for his wife that Sunday evening, as analysis of the drink showed it contained atropine at a rate of 292 milligrams per litre of tonic, nearly three times the concentration from the bottle from which the tonic had been poured, and three times the level needed to kill a healthy adult. Yeah, I'll just have a cup of tea, eh? When the court heard this point raised in a tape-recorded interview between Agatha and police after his arrest that was played during the trial, they heard Detective Chief Inspector Brian Donaghan tell Agatha, We are suggesting that you contaminated your wife's gin and tonic, and that you contaminated the other bottles in order to cover that action. I don't hear denials, Doctor. Agatha replied, I did not do it. I did not do it. Yet the testimony of paramedic James Roach, who'd seized the gin and tonic and took it for analysis to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, suggested otherwise. He told the court that Agatha had handed over the tonic water bottle immediately, and indeed it had been he who'd professed that he thought it may be contaminated. But when James had asked for the actual drink itself as well, Agatha had, I quote, frowned at this request suddenly but had nevertheless handed it over. He'd reacted thus because, the Crown suggested, he knew analysis would show that the poison tonic water in his wife's glass was higher in atropine concentration than the bottle it came from. The doctor and emergency services had also arrived much quicker than he'd anticipated, not giving him chance to dispose of the poison drink and prepare a tonic bottle to hand over, containing a much lower quantity of atropine. Paul Agatha himself entered the witness box on day six of the trial to deny repeatedly that he'd deliberately poisoned his wife and covered his tracks by placing contaminated tonic water on supermarket shelves without caring who bought it. During more than two hours of evidence, Agatha told of his good character, telling the court that the only other crime he'd ever been charged with 
involved a parking ticket. His counsel, Mr Neil Murray QC, put to him evidence that suggested he had the opportunity and the ability to obtain the poison and what the tabloid press might regard as the motive to attempt to murder his wife, a conversation which went as follows. Agatha, no, I had no motive. Mr Murray, you had a mistress, hadn't you? Agatha, I would not use that word. Mr Murray, do you find that an offensive word? Agatha, I do, yes. Now Agatha eventually accepted Mr Murray's phrase that he had two ladies in his life, but he also insisted that Carol Bonsall was not putting him under any pressure to leave his wife and marry her. He agreed he might have been at Safeways on August the 24th putting two bottles of tonic water on shelves, but said he had simply found them on the floor. He was asked to explain evidence which showed the concentration of atropine in his wife's drink was markedly higher than the concentration in the bottle he'd bought at Safeway, with Mr Murray pointing out the obvious explanation being that the poison had been placed directly into his wife's glass. Agatha countered this with that another possible explanation was that powdered atropine had been used to contaminate the tonic bottle and that some of it had possibly become stuck around the neck before dropping into the glass when the tonic was poured in, which would have caused a higher concentration. Asked why he'd not dialed 999 when his wife became ill, but simply left a message through his GP's answering service instead, Agatha replied, I take the view that our emergency services are badly overstretched, and I would only telephone 999 for an ambulance if I knew I was facing an immediately life-threatening situation. Questioned then by Andrew Lamb, the advocate deputy, Agatha was reminded about the meeting with his GP, Ross Langlands, a week before the Safeway incident. Because a mandate had been signed by both so that the doctor-patient discussion could be heard in court, the GP had given evidence about the fact that Agatha had visited him, claiming he'd felt suicidal because of a number of problems, including the fact that he was under pressure to leave his wife and marry Miss Bonsall. I never once felt under pressure from Carol of that sort, replied Agatha. Mr Lamb then asked, Is it not the position that your feelings towards your situation persisted and that, as a consequence, you set out to poison your wife deliberately? Agatha, no sir. Mr Lamb, and at the same time, with a view to cover the tracks of what you were doing, you adulterated tonic water at Safeways and allowed it to be put on shelves, regardless of who might buy the tonic with atropine poisoning in it. Agatha, I did not do it. Mr Lamb, that explains why the atropine in your wife's drink was substantially higher than anywhere else. Agatha, no sir, that's not the explanation. Defence counsel Neil Murray had described the type of person who placed poison tonic bottles on supermarket shelves as conniving, cunning, devious and evil. On the 1st of February 1995, after three and a half hours deliberation, the jury of eight men and seven women decided that this description perfectly fitted Paul Agatha. They convicted 48-year-old Agatha by a majority verdict of attempting to murder Alexandra and also, again by a majority, of placing bottles contaminated with the poison on the shelves of the Safeway supermarket, causing injury to seven people. 
The Crown had the day before dropped the charge of attempted murder of an 11-year-old girl at Kilduff Lodge on August the 28th. After finding him guilty, Lord Morrison told Agatha, This was an evil and cunningly devised crime which was not only designed to bring about the death of your wife, but also caused great alarm, danger and injury to the public. You will go to prison for a period of 12 years. Agatha swallowed hard, blinked away tears and stooped, but otherwise showed little emotion as he was led away to begin his sentence. After the trial, Chief Superintendent John McGowan of the Lothian and Borders Police, who had overseen the investigation, concluded, Dr. Agatha was an educated, clever man who had everything going for him. He went to extraordinary lengths to plan what could have been the perfect crime. We're not talking about a split personality here, but a calm, collected and very dangerous person. For some people who knew Agatha though, his conviction came as no surprise. A former student of his, Steve Fleming, said, I could believe he cooked this up to simply see if he could get away with it. I can see him doing it as an experiment. He thought he was above everyone else and he could destroy them. He was always a bit of a nutter and last time I saw him, he looked insane. Agatha's conviction meant that life for the Sherwood Smiths and other families could now return to normal. Dr. Sherwood Smith said following the verdict, To us at the time, this was just another family which had been poisoned. He told us he was medically qualified and not practising. That was a lie. He also said this to other people. He appeared to know just how much atropine could go into tonic water before it could be detected by taste. I was astonished by this. Even though he was a biochemist, it was an odd thing to know. He definitely had expert knowledge about atropine, and he seemed to want to show it off. It was something of a miracle that no one was killed. But for some extraordinary chances, he could have got away with it. It was so clever and convenient, but he was just too clever. One of the other victims, Marie Mason, said, I'm relieved that it's at an end, relieved that he's been found guilty and relieved that he's got a decent sentence. Maybe I can start getting on with my life again. It's been a very traumatic time for us. I'm quaking as I talk. Every time I think of it, it's a blinking nightmare. As you can imagine, it kind of would have been, wouldn't it? I mean, bloody hell. On Friday the 7th of July 1995, Agatha was back in court, this time at Edinburgh's Court of Criminal Appeal, appealing his conviction, where his counsel, Neil Murray, claimed that Agatha had suffered a miscarriage of justice in that Lord Morrison, presiding over his trial, had not gone far enough in advising the jury accordingly. The appeal centred on the drink that Agatha had poured for Alexandra, the one allegedly containing a sky-high amount of atropine. Along with the gin, tonic and ice cubes which James Rudge had poured into the jam jar to be taken away for analysis, was also a slice of lemon. However, when the prosecution produced the drink as an exhibit at the later trial, the lemon slice was missing. This, coupled with queries over the labelling of the sample, naturally led the defence to suggest that it was not in fact the sample taken that Alexandra Agatha had drank from, and the appeal insisted that the trial judge should have directed the jury to discount the evidence relating to the drink completely. 
but the appeal hearing, chaired by Lord Ross, sitting with Lords Johnston and Murray, dismissed the appeal. They were not swayed by the argument and found that Lord Morrison had indeed given adequate warning about this, thus concluding that the verdict reached had been a sound and secure one. Agatha said nothing as he was led back to Her Majesty's prison shots to complete his sentence. Yet there were still people, including Alexandra Agatha, who wholeheartedly believed in Paul Agatha's innocence, and following his unsuccessful appeal, friends of Agatha's launched a campaign called Innocent. Led by a friend of his, Dr Phil Taylor, concerts were held and car stickers were made, all to raise awareness and gather support for Paul Agatha, with a campaign firmly believing that someone else, someone with a grudge against Paul or Alexandra Agatha, was behind the poisoning campaign. Yet even Agatha himself by that time seems to have accepted his sentence and reportedly had settled into incarceration in Schott's prison, with Phil Taylor telling the Herald newspaper, He's liked by the prisoners because he helps them sort out their problems. He writes letters for them. He does not really hold out any hopes of the campaign clearing his name. Optimism. More than just a good word on countdown, eh? By that time also, Alexandra Agatha was in such financial dire straits that she was reportedly working as a builder's labourer to make ends meet, long since having given up her £30,000 a year academic role. Two years later, she was to launch a £100,000 claim for damages against the Safeway supermarket chain, claiming that she'd suffered as a result of the company's fault and negligence. She'd changed her tune and opinion from the criminal trial, Whereas she had said at that time that she did not believe her husband had done it, now she maintained that he had tampered with the bottles, and she'd started divorce proceedings against him, which were finalised the following year. She maintained that Safeway were negligent because a public announcement should have been made to alert the public of the risks associated with tonic water bought from the store on about the August the 24th, before she drank the poison tonic on August the 28th. However, a nationwide public warning was not issued until after she became ill, and she argued that if one had been, she would probably have been aware of it and not taken the drink. Now, unfortunately and frustratingly, I was unable to find out if she was successful in her claim for damages, and what made her change a tune, to be honest. Was it financial or what? Who knows? Whilst in Glenock Hill Prison near Stirling, where he was moved to shortly after his appeal failed, Agatha began to use his academic skills in teaching some of the other inmates, less educated than himself, to read. He obtained work in the prison library and made a special effort to help fellow prisoners gain basic literacy and numeracy skills, which he told all and sundry who would listen that he would continue to do after his release. Agatha even submitted an essay about his work and entered it for a competition run by the Prison Reform Trust, a scripture that read in part, Virtually illiterate men have learned to read and write to at least early primary school standard, and several have begun to read with more enjoyment, and to write letters to family and friends with great facility. The personal satisfaction is worth emphasising. I've become passionately committed to adult basic education tuition, and I'm so convinced of its value that I hope in the future to be in a position to foster its development in prisons throughout the UK. 
By June 2002, when Paul Agatha knew that he was to be released on licence in September of that year, having served seven years of his sentence, he telephoned his former wife to say that he was innocent and he naturally expected to come back and live in the family home where she and their daughter still lived, despite not having contact with either for several years. His daughter had visited him for a time in prison, but the visits had dried up. Now naturally this didn't happen, as Alexandra wanted nothing to do with him whatsoever and had refused all contact with her ex-husband, long refusing to visit him in prison or take his calls to her home. In August 2002, she was granted an interim interdict, preventing Agatha from phoning her, calling at or entering her home and attempting to make contact with her. Her counsel, John Mundy, argued that there was no legitimate reason for Agatha to call at the house where his wife and daughter still lived, and that by doing so, this would cause considerable fear, alarm and distress, saying at the hearing, It is apparent that Agatha has no understanding of the damage he has done to his family, and that he believes he has done nothing wrong. He expects others to regard him as innocent. He gives the clear impression that he is temporarily absent from home, and has given the impression that after his release, will resume life as if nothing had happened, and return to the former matrimonial home. So upon his release, Agatha instead left Scotland and moved back in with his elderly parents, Alice and Walter, in Glossop, Derbyshire, rarely venturing outside the front door of run-down Ivy Cottage for his first few weeks of freedom. One neighbour said at the time, we didn't even know the couple had a son in prison. I saw Paul the other day putting out the bin for the first time and he's obviously trying to keep a low profile. It's not every day you find yourself living next door to a poisoner. When it emerged that Agatha had been released from jail, one of his victims, Marie Mason, said, I was very disappointed that he was released as early as he was for the crime that was committed. I lost a weekend of my life. I did not know where I was, and my family got the most horrendous fright. It was also reported two months after his release that Agatha had also plotted a sinister revenge on his former mistress from his prison cell, as he had asked a fellow convict due for release to help him destroy Carol Bonsall by framing her on drugs charges after she'd ended their relationship while he was on remand and had sold her story in the wake of his trial. Before his release, the former convict, a criminal with a history of violence, was given a sketch drawing of Carol by talented artist Agatha to identify her when he was freed, alongside a detailed description of her and her habitual movements in a handwritten note. The former prisoner told the Daily Record newspaper in November 2002, Agatha wanted revenge, pure and simple. He couldn't accept she dumped him and then sold the story of their affair. He went on and on about it. He knew of my connections, and one morning he gave me the sketch and details of her car and where she shopped. I was just a few weeks away from the end of my sentence. He wanted me to show Carol's picture to my contacts in Edinburgh, so everyone would know what she looked like. Then he said to me, I want her destroyed. The ex-convict said he'd played along with Agatha's plans, but had no intention of carrying them out, continuing, the easiest way to destroy this woman's reputation would have been to plant drugs in her car. A nod is as good as a wink in these circles, and it doesn't take a leap of the imagination, given that he said the car would be unlocked, to know what was expected. 
Agatha clearly knew what he wanted done and had obviously given it some thought. Anything could have happened. That's why I did nothing about it. I held on to that information. I certainly didn't want to be responsible for anything. Agatha is a clever and resourceful man and that made it even scarier. He knew there were people who liked him in prison and wouldn't care. He was careful not to give specific instructions and he didn't offer any incentive. But in jail he was an articulate and intelligent person and was easy with his advice if asked. He had influence and certainly had some cons in the prison in his pocket. The suggestion was clear that anyone willing to take this on would be rewarded but there was no way anyone was going to harm this innocent woman. Carol Bonsall refused to discuss these reported threats to ruin her reputation when approached by the record, but a close friend of hers told the paper. She was terrified when she heard about this. She knows what Paul is capable of and is under no illusions that he could do something to her. She tries to live a quiet life these days. Few of her neighbours know about her past. In 2004, it was reported that Agatha was back in employment. He'd been applying for work since his release, and in March 2004, it was revealed that since October 2002, Agatha had been employed to teach philosophy and medical ethics to night classes for two hours a week at the University of Manchester. His first lecture at the university's Centre for Continuing Education was for mature students on the ethics of therapeutic cloning and he was assigned to teach another course, The Evolution of Evolutionary Ideas, that was due to start in May 2004 and run for six weeks. When informed of Agatha's past, a spokesperson from the University of Manchester said, He applied for the job, we took up his references, and he was appointed to the post after due process. Like all other courses in this brochure, it is not known at this stage whether this course will go ahead. This decision will depend on the number of enrolments that we receive for the course and further investigations by the university to ascertain whether Dr Agatha's appointment as part-time tutor was in accordance with the university's employment policies and procedures. That doesn't sound pre-decided at all, does it? Perhaps not surprisingly, when the university discovered that they had a convicted poisoner on their staff, they decided not to renew his contract. I mean, you'd never let him make the tea for a start, would you? Now, there is an aside to this tale worth noting. In 1995, Wayne Smith, the 26-year-old man who had written to newspapers falsely confessing to being the Safeway poisoner, was sent to a mental hospital without limit of time after being deemed a danger to the public for putting weed killer into two bottles of fruit juice and returning them to the shelves of the Safeway branch in Edinburgh's Morningside Road on October 2nd, 1994. Dr Diana Morrison told Edinburgh Sheriff Court that the poisoning incident had taken place when Smith, suffering from a schizophrenic illness, had stopped taking part of his prescribed medication, and that he'd previously made a false confession to a similar poisoning incident, the one committed by Dr Paul Agatha, in a bid to cover up an attempt to murder his wife. Solicitor Nigel Beaumont said that following the false confession, Smith had mistakenly reduced the dosage of his drugs, leading to a return of his illness. He had then heard God's voice telling him that the police were devils, and that if he poisoned a particular brand and type of squash, only the police would drink it. 
so he'd contaminated two bottles with weed killer. The court was then told that Smith had subsequently telephoned a newspaper to warn of his poisoning bid, but by that time a contaminated bottle had already been bought, returned to the shop and destroyed. The couple who had bought it to give to their grandchildren had noticed that the seal was broken and the juice was cloudy, so thankfully none of it was ever drunk. Deputy Fiscal Ian McSporran, is the best Scottish name I've ever heard in my life, said that the amount of weed killer in the bottle meant that a child would have had to drink 10 to 15 glasses to be significantly at risk. That amount, however, would have produced moderate to severe poisoning, possibly even death. Dr Derek Chiswick, giving evidence, said the degree and nature of Smith's illness meant that he should be treated in hospital as a detained patient, saying, I believe he does pose a risk to the general public. However, the risk was minimal as long as he kept taking his medication, and a hospital order without limit of time would ensure that Smith did this. The doctor added that Smith did not need the special security provided by the state hospital at Carstairs, and would hopefully eventually be moved from the intensive unit at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital to an open ward. Sheriff Andrew Bell subsequently ordered Smith, who had admitted culpable and reckless conduct at an earlier hearing, to be detained without limit of time in Royal Edinburgh Hospital, saying that the only alternative would have been a long jail sentence. Ironically, the court was told that Wayne Smith and Paul Agatha had even shared a cell for two days in Sorton Prison the previous year. You couldn't make it up, could you? Isn't this an unreal story or what? And you think, why exactly? To have such a lifestyle and really have the best of both worlds, respectable, well-paid career, a nice home and a home life that worked for both of them, even if it wasn't conventional and the norm. But then for some people, it's never enough, is it? So rather than go the normal route people should if they're unhappy and talk about things and get it all out in the open, you instead decide that your wife must die in such a painful and fear-inducing way. It's unlikely Alexandra would have stood in the way of his happiness and blocked the divorce from him. As we've heard, both parties' affairs were common knowledge, so it leaves it down to a financial motive. But rather than come to an amicable arrangement and maybe downscale the house and sort out a fair financial settlement, Agatha thought, bollocks to that and decided on another course of action murder he was well aware that his best method would be poison something that would hardly be suspected may even be missed at any subsequent post-mortem examination and something that he could relatively easily get hold of in such a way that would not draw suspicion to himself and he decided upon atropine within the university of napier was a highly rated biomedical research group of which Agatha was a part of, and atropine was readily available from such suppliers as Sigma Aldrich, which would have been easy enough for him to order under guise of obtaining it from the university. It would have cost next to nothing also. Indeed, even by 2005, atropine sulfate cost just £12.60 for 5 grams. In the event, he didn't even need to order any quantity and so have a traceable paper record back to him, for there was already an existing bottle of the chemical within the department that he could take the quantity he required from without it being missed. After all, 
it could be explained away by him using it for the purposes of experimental research. So Agatha's plan was to put a fatal dose of atropine in his wife's gin and tonic one evening, but callously to cover his tracks and make her death seem as though it was the act of a random killer, some nut hell-bent on causing harm. He also spiked several other bottles of tonic water with it, then placed the contaminated bottles back onto the shelves of the Safeway supermarket at Hunter's Tryst, a store that was only a short drive away from his offices at Napier University. But this is where his plan became an absolute shamble of bollocks. Because unfortunately, Alexandra Agatha took only a short sip and found it a proper Esther Ranson of a drink. It was far too bitter and it was stronger than the Hulk, so she only drank part of it. Although even the amount she'd ingested in such a sip may have been enough to kill her. So as it took effect and she became unwell, instead of fetching an ambulance, Agatha instead called the local GP and left a message on the answering machine, making it sound urgent and requesting that he contact him back. At this point, he must have thought, yeah, game on here. But he didn't anticipate both the GP and emergency services arriving at the house as quickly as they did leaving him no time to dispose of the evidence that was left lying about in his own home. Too late, Agatha realised that he should have thrown away the poisoned drink and the bottle and retained a second bottle of tonic water with less atropine in it. His evil plan come unstuck there, and I'm sure he had seven years smarting about that. Smart guy, but too smart for his own good. And that's horror enough, isn't it? To show so little disregard for your wife and the mother of your child to be prepared to do that. But to risk the lives of countless other people also, all to cover your tracks. It's just monstrous, isn't it? It's unbelievable that no one was killed as a result of his actions. Now there's no record of Paul Agatha suffering from any lasting mental illness at all, bar the stress and depression he reported to his doctor before his crimes and no reported instances of psychiatric supervision or intervention during his imprisonment or after his release. But you have to think to yourself, to do that, to risk all those people just to cover your own tracks and think you can get away with it, that has to be narcissism or even pure psychopathy that, doesn't it? No regard for the widespread devastation he could quite easily have caused, no concern for his wife or daughter whatsoever. More than one account has even suggested that Agatha may even have done it purely to see if he could get away with it. And that's not beyond the realms of possibility either, is it? Now advanced in years, but still undoubtedly a very smart man, and free today as we've said, Agatha was last reported as sitting on the editorial board of the journal Theoretical Biology and Molecular Modelling. An online search of his credentials reports him as being a member of the Biochemical Society and the author or co-author of such works as Between Nucleus and Cytoplasm and The Meaning of Nucleocytoplasmic Transport Molecular Biology Intelligence Unit. Perhaps Agatha is today a reformed character, once again applying his intelligence to more fruitful and law-abiding pursuits. He may have made friends again and began to show some of the Paul Agatha that was so regarded by colleagues and students alike many years ago. Yet if he goes to the pub as a free man, I reckon he never has to go up to the bar to get a round in, does he? I'd be like, no, it's alright Paul, uh, I'll get me own tar.
I found this one to be a truly remarkable story. One when I read it, I thought it's got the enthusiast written all over it. And I'd love as always to hear your thoughts and opinions on the case of Paul Agatha and his almost deadly gin and tonic. Which you can do so in the episode thread that's now up and running in the show's Facebook discussion group. Or through any of the show's social media links. Bloody hell if you want to. You can even show me what you think in the form of mime and send me a video of you doing so if you wish to. I'm always happy to hear from you guys however. With that, it's wrap-up time here on the show for this time around, and on to preparing the next tale from the abyss. I thank you very kindly for joining me here today, and all that's left for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, stay safe out there all, because shit's still real, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.